Yes, a very good morning. This is On The Record on News Talk. Kieran Goddard here with you until one o'clock today. If you want to contact the programme, you can do so in the usual ways. 53106 for your texts. That will cost you 30 cent. Or you can get me on Twitter for free, at Kieran Goodyhe. We have lots coming up on the programme over the next couple of hours. As always, we'll kick things off with a look at the Sunday papers. Uh, the panel in studio today, Gráinne Nieda, reporter with the journal.ie, Colette Brown, barrister and columnist with the Irish Independent. Sounds like I'm saying barrister with the Irish Independent there. <laughs> uh, columnist with the Irish Independent and barrister. John O'Brennan, <laughs> Professor of European Politics at NUI Minutes. Good morning, you're all very welcome. Good morning. Uh, I'll just run through the front pages for people at home. Uh, the Sunday Independent lead with Harris at war with officials as worst crisis ever looms breakdown of trust in Department of Health the worst crisis ever is that well the impending trolley crisis winter trolley crisis it's a perpetual trolley crisis but it does get worse in winter people predicting we will have 1,000 people on trolleys someday soon over the next couple of months Uh, they also have an interesting story Brandon O'Connor's writing about uh, Johnny Marr on the front page Irish blood English heart on his front page piece Uh, Donald Fallon is actually going to be talking about Johnny Marr and the Smiths and Stone Roses and Primal Scream and others uh, before the end of the show and Hidden Histories and their connection to a thigh of all places. Uh, Johnny Marr's grandparents, or Johnny Marr's parents and Manny from the Stone Rose's parents lived within five doors of each other uh, in a thigh. Can't you go there? there. I bet you didn't know that anyway. Uh, the Sunday Business Post, XHSE Chief Harris is a weak minister. The PAC is a kangaroo court. So Tony O'Brien has sat down with Susan Mitchell uh, from the Business Post to give this exclusive interview. It's a really interesting read. There is lots of stuff in it. Uh, we will get back to some of that in a few minutes time. Uh, the Sunday Times leads with May's secret deal to keep the UK in a customs union. British government sources say Prime Minister Theresa May has secured concessions from Brussels that will keep the whole of the UK in a customs union for a time, helping to avoid a hard border in Ireland. Uh, also a story below the fold I want to mention. Give UAE respect, says O'Farrell. Sean O'Farrell, the Count Corla, has criticised media coverage of the war in Yemen, uh, saying that the UAE are doing great humanitarian work as well in the country. Uh, he does imagine that their great humanitarian work includes bombing Oxfam aid convoys <laughs> driving through the country to the besieged people of Yemen. Uh, the Observer as well, I want to mention uh, we don't often do the UK papers, but there's Aaron Banks is on the front page there uh, as he flew in from Bermuda yesterday. He was going on Andrew Marr today. They have a story. Aaron Banks faces new claims of misleading MPs over Brexit. He's, of course, the businessman who's behind Leave.eu. A uh, number of emails leaked uh, that shows that despite denials that he gave to uh, MPs while he was being questioned that insurance staff in some of his companies that were employed by I suppose companies owned by Rock Services it's all quite complicated were actually working uh, on the Leave.eu campaign uh, but anyway this was all in advance of this uh, interview he did with Andrew Marr on the BBC this morning take a quick listen in a sense, seven thousand is now fifty-five thousand. This is all getting too complicated. Yeah, well, it would eight be now. million. You just eight, want to smear me? No, I don't want to smear yeah, you. I do. want to know where did the money Andrew, originally come it's from? It's not like I'm using a super injunction to try and hide my. Where did here. the money originally I'm you, come it came from? came from a UK company Which that had company? cash generated in the UK. Which We've UK company? Rock Services. We've evidenced that to the electric Your Rock Commission. Services is a shell company. It doesn't generate you money. You just said it's a shell company. Ah, you just read the FT. And on and on and on like that, and we will come back to that a little bit later. It is actually quite interesting uh, some of the aspects of that. But look, there's also uh, Brexit news and about a customs union. Just don't call it a customs union uh, uh, that we will get to. But I want to come to first, uh, back to the story that HSE, uh, Tony O'Brien, former head of the HSE, in the interview he's given 
to the business post today. Uh, Cadet, I, I might start with you. It's hard to know where to start because <laughs> the, he kind of, he, he has in his sights so many different things uh, going on. Was there kind of one area in particular that stood out for you as interesting? Well, I think all of his um, kind of vituperative comments about pretty much everybody in political life. Um, I mean, he stood down from the HSE. He was forced to stand down really in May and it's clear that he's been mulling over what he's going to say in his first uh, interview and it is, I don't, I don't think it's, um, you know, wrong to call it an explosive interview. I mean, this is the man who in 2015, when he was still the head of the HSE, described the HSE as an amorphous blob and said it had no plan, no money and no vision. And that's when he was actually leading the HSE. So <laughs> he doesn't have really very good things to say. I mean, he has quite a personalised attack on the health minister, Simon Harris. He describes him as a frightened little boy throughout the cervical uh, check scandal. He says that he was running scared of headlines on the PAC. He describes the PAC as a kangaroo court because he, of course, had to go in and face questioning from the PAC and he faced a lot of uh, bitter and angry comments from a lot of TDs. He describes Fianna Fáil's Mark McSherry as Ireland's self-styled angriest man. He says Sinn Féin TDs. He uh, Actually, he leaves most of his criticism for Sinn Féin, the, mm. the worst of his criticism for Sinn Féin and he says, and he says that they swapped the balaclava for parliamentary pr- privilege and, yeah. you know, that they have no respect for politicians and they're trying to get, um, you know, score some cheap points. The he, politics embraced by Sinn Féin, he says, were a duplicitous pursuit of populist notoriety by a new leader and her acolytes who are trading on misfortune and prepared to destroy whatever they need in the naked pursuit of power. Doesn't sound like a quote that you just dream up off the top of your head no, I mean, he's as sat you said down, having stewed over it for some time he's obviously been stewing over, over this for quite some time and this wasn't he didn't just sit down with Susan Harris on on one occasion Susan Mitchell, Susan yeah. Mitchell sorry he, he, he's, he sat down with her on, on, on a number of occasions and I mean the, the interview is quite lengthy on the media he says the media is promoting politicians who um, promote being hysterical and they're you know advancing inaccuracies so he's critical of the media I suppose he's saying that we engage in maybe the promotion of uh, you know uh, fake news and that it's See, I think it's he's still talking about Mark McSharry there whatever the inaccuracies <laughs> that there was that exchange where uh, he, he accused Mark McSharry of being hysterical actually uh, in the PAC and I think objectively speaking Mark McSharry was was hysterical uh, th- 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 throughout that actually and he didn't actually get any kind of elicit any information from you know from any of the HSE officials Mark McSharry all, all he did was berate them and try to get headlines and I suppose that's what um, that, 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 that's what uh, he's, he's saying now about the media that we kind of promote politicians who know the least about but, uh, about a subject but who provide the most kind of um, colourful quote I suppose is, is what you could say. I mean I did find certain aspects of, of the interview quite extraordinary. Um, he said that he sought legal advice as when he was the head of the HSC to see whether he could get involved in the repeal the 8th campaign which I just found completely extraordinary like how could the, he- the head of the mm. health service possibly believe that he had a role to play on either side of the repeal the I mean it just would have been completely politically toxic for him to do that and it would have been very damaging actually to the repeal campaign if he had gotten involved so I've no idea why he felt the need to seek le- legal advice it should have been obvious to somebody in that position that that was something that he could never have gotten involved in I mean he says he concedes that the HSE's initial response to the cervical check scandal was a train wreck but then he kind of absolves himself of any kind of blame for that train wreck um, you know that he he relies on the Scali report that did kind of absolve or it did you know c- come to the conclusion 
that there was no kind of huge cover up and mm. that it was a systems error and he relies on that but actually the Scully report also said that there were governance issues inside in cervical check but he, again he washes his hand of any responsibility for any, any, any of that I mean he had a board seat on a pharma company an American pharma company and he was on that board while he was the head of the HSE and he completely justifies that yeah there's no that kind there's of there's no conflict of interest and he kind of says well wasn't I right now seeing what happened you know that I, I put the first jigsaw in place of my kind of stepping down from the HSC in my future life after the HSC and there's no kind of admission that you know maybe that wasn't the cleverest thing to do the head of the Irish Health Service being involved in a US pharma company just purely you know from optics I think actually the most damaging part of his interview actually is he, is he says that he was stymied in his job and unable to do what he wanted to do because of political interference yes. and political cowardness and if you remember the HSC was set up, the whole raison d'etre of the HSC was to remove political interference from the health service so that we would have this, you know, objective way of dealing with the health service and money would be directed to where it was most needed, not to political pet projects. He does have some kind things to say about some people. Richard Boyd Barrett, actually, interestingly, he, he says that uh, Richard Boyd Barrett asked he tough, tough questions, <laughs> uh, which he, ref- which reflected his own concerns. He didn't pull his punches. He demonstrated, uh, by example, Neo that you could ask tough well. questions and express strongly held views, yet behave with dignity and show respect. He, I pity the rat more yeah, like Yeah, Varadkar as he, well. He, he describes Leo Varadkar as, as a straight talker. And, you know, when it's put to him that actually Leo Varadkar has a reputation for engaging in spin, he says, no, he's a straight talker. He says what, 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 what's on his mind. But, you know, when he's asked what he, what he would have done differently if you know politicians weren't kind of holding him back he says he would have closed a, low, a load of 24 hour A&E's basically yeah. all over the country he said he would have closed uh, A&E and intensive care in Port Leisha he's scathing about Navin Hospital actually he says he would have ended 24 hour A&E in, in Navin and actually what I think is a very serious comment from him he says it's not an A&E that he would personally wish to be taken yeah. to if he was ill and I think I mean that's an amazing comment from the head of the HSE he says Dublin has way too many A and E units. We have seven at the moment. He says that we only need three, and he goes on and on and on and on with with with, with all of these problems with 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 other people. Oh, yeah, w- w- within the health service, and you know, some some of the remarks he made, or or some, you know, some some of the stuff he says about Dublin having too many A A E units, it seems to make a lot of sense. And you wonder, you know, why are there seven A A E units in in Dublin when you know we have a population of maybe about one million? Do we really need that many? Yeah, we have seven, I think. And he says the ideal number actually should be three. If you had three better stocked A E units, it w- it would be better. It did some of the things you're talking about there, like it does strike me a little like you know when he's asked if he were to be asked, you know, about regrets of any decisions you made it would be like I regret people stopped me making even more of the right decisions <laughs> uh, but uh, if I just touch on a few of those things that, that uh, Colette brought up the, the issue around the PAC and he talked a bit about some of the grandstanding that goes on he also talked about though the amount of time that he has to spend before Rockless committees are answering questions about things that he says has nothing to do with him you know directly or indirectly some of it predated his, his, his tenure as head of the HSE and he, he talked as well about the fact that this actually stopped him, you know, making some of the changes or some of the reforms he'd like, just the amount of time consumed by all of this. I think I think kind of that statement in itself raises a question about how much responsibility the head of a department or a service uh, has when something goes wrong, like the or the cervical check scandal. So when we see uh, Tony O'Brien was quite... quite um, I suppose, complimentary towards Grania Flannery and said Harris did her disservice by not, by 
you know, let it, allowing her to step down and that role hasn't been filled yet. So that's kind of like an interesting um, debate that you could you could argue. There's also a couple of contradictions in, in the article. Um, I think it's interesting that the first paragraph talks about politicians and the media are too hard on public figures. And then in the next paragraph, he criticises Harris as a frightened little boy. It's kind of like, you know, doing the thing that he's literally giving out about. And then he goes through a load of different politicians and criticises them. So it's kind of, um, you know, you're, it's not healing anything to use that analogy yeah, through, through doing that. He, he does compliment Mary Harney but it kind of strikes me John it's one of those compliments that's like a clock, a broken clock is right twice a day you know <laughs> she, the cancer she strategy the is good but she was there bloody long enough. <laughs> yes she's being damned with faint praise. Yes. Uh, it's a very familiar refrain. Yeah I think the thing that the whole piece just reeks of hypocrisy. Here's somebody who was in office for a very, very long period of time. And if he's arguing that the politicians have achieved very little, Fine Gael, for example, after 2011, uh, the universal uh, health care initiative, which they wanted to uh, roll out. And he argues that virtually nothing of that has been accomplished. I think we'll all agree that he's probably right. Um, but he doesn't want to take any of the blame for the multiple failures and recurring failures uh, within the health service. So there's nothing new here, I think. But I think what is new is um, exactly what uh, Colette pointed to initially, which was the vituperation in the comments about politicians. It, it seeps through every part of the, uh, the, 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 the article. He the, says he says um, or the, there's a piece where he you know he insists he's not bitter and then, yeah. <laughs> then he just comes out with all of these caustic comments about about everyone and you're thinking well if but you're not bitter I'm not I sure. think it's interesting that he uh, he talks about you know that the serv- the HSE response to sh- cervical check was a train wreck but then you wonder about how how much the cervical check scandal has stuck to Harris himself um, it seems to have landed all at. Tony O'Brien's feet and Grania Flannery's feet and then Harris is kind of absolved of all responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I have a certain level of sympathy for the way that he, that he was treated and he was a very straight talker and you admire, you know, somebody who can give an interview like the one he gave to the Sunday Business Post in, in 2015 calling the HSC an amorphous blob and saying that there was no vision, there was no strategy and appealing to politicians to have a cohesive plan to agree on something so that, you know, something could be done. Um, so, I mean, he does have a point in, in that regard. I find his comment about Simon Harris a frightened little boy, you know, I, I, I just find it's it a bit... Personal. You know, a bit I, I, think dig, it's too, I, I think it's too personal. I mean, I think every politician in Leinster House was frightened around the time of the cervical... Ch- I mean, I, I don't think age was a bar on somebody being frightened of media reports and, you know, what, what was going to come next. I mean, he said that he was running scared of headlines. Every politician was was running scared of headlines. So I, I think it's a bit of a cheap dig. I mean, he, he, he is quite scathing about Fine Gael. He lists out, you know, all of the kind of policy commitments that they had going in, you know, the last number of years. Hospital trusts, universal health insurance. They were going to abolish the HSE. They did U-turns on all of those. And you could understand from his perspective as somebody who's leading this huge organisation, 140,000 yeah. staff, 15 billion budget. And you're told that you're supposed to be working towards one goal. And then actually, you know, the politicians kind of reverse and, oh, no, you were supposed to be doing something else. And, you know, how can you manage that as 
as if if you are supposed to be making progress. And there was um, a, another interesting stat I thought I, th- I thought he gave this a thirty two percent increase in the over sixty fives between two thousand and six and two thousand and sixteen. Yeah. The population went up six percent at the same time, but the number of acute beds in the country went down fourteen percent. And he's saying, you know, in the context of those kinds of cutbacks and those, you know, the removal of those acute beds from the system, that actually I didn't do too badly in the end. Grania, to, to the you, you would have covered kind of PAC and Oireachtas committee uh, meetings as well. Like, does he have a point about their ineffectiveness or how, how much of a waste? The PAC got a huge amount of credit all around kind of, I suppose, that Morris McCabe saga and and, you know, and various issues around that as well, about spending in Temple Moor and everything and, and some of the issues that they would have covered. But there is an awful lot of grandstanding at them. There is an awful lot of, you know, you can almost skip 90% of the questioning because it's mostly just making points and then at the very end. And here's my question Absolutely, to you. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's kind of a classic. Um, it, it, it gets to a certain point at the question and you wonder, is there a question coming where they want to make a point in this kind of public arena, I suppose is a good analogy of it. And then uh, whatever the response is, it's not about getting responses to questions, which is should be the point of it. But at the PSC, PAC committees on, on this subject, I mean, a lot of interesting things did come out of it. And I think you're always going to get a bit of ego with politicians and there's just no other way around it. But that doesn't mean the whole process is defunct because of that. Um, a lot of things came out about the legal cases that were taken, about the letters that women were sent that didn't specify. I think it, um, I think it was Louise, uh, was it um, a Sinn Féin uh, candidate who made the point, because they, they were criticised quite a lot by O'Brien, but they made the point that the letters these um, women were sent out didn't specify that the, the cervical check tests weren't um, 100% accurate and she said that's not a, a very specific figure if it's 70% accurate you need to specify the exact figure and there was a really interesting discussion about what the actual figure was and members of the cervical check scandal and, or the cervical check um, programme and the HSE couldn't agree on a figure so that's a really interesting thing that came out of the PAC and to do, kind of dismiss it all as destructive or a kangaroo court is not doing it justice I, I just want to the, the first notice I got of what might be in this article was actually an email last night from the Irish Hospital Consultants Association welcoming the email uh, because uh, in it uh, or welcoming the article welcoming the email welcoming the article um, that uh, because in it Tony O'Brien says look one of the big issues he says is actually just staff it's resources you know what I mean it's kind of that classic supply and demand we have this more money we we, we have this uh, (laughs) demand because of all these old people the the temerity of them to be ageing in this country um, and putting a demand on our health uh, service um, and we need more consultants so pay them more money and retain them yeah, there is no doubt that his tenure in office coincided with the development of these huge uh, deficits. And you can see it all over the public service over the last 10 years. We are desperately trying to catch up and in a context where we still have a huge level of public debt. And it has been genuinely difficult to manage the almost infinite set of demands that you get from all over the place uh, and to try then respond sector by sector and to, you know, to to attach a kind of hierarchy of priorities. There's no doubt that the health service is hugely important. But if you look at the budget for 2019, the increase in the health service budget of about one billion, the increase in education was 150 billion. And the, the HSE increase is really arbitrary. Uh, no, no, billion for uh, the course of the year. Uh, and it can't be 150 no. billion. Oh, the, no, 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 no. Education was, yeah, and education was 150 million. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so there's a there's a ratio there of six to one in terms of the priority, and yet still nothing seems to improve very much. 
So there are deep structural problems that haven't been addressed. The Slauncher Care framework certainly, I think, is the best that has been produced. But the problem is it's going to take at least a decade before the kind of action on beds, for example, replacing those beds in the system. Well, I think, uh, is, yeah, is I, I think his, his main point, Tony Bryan's main point is that we have all of these, um, you know, A&E units around the hospital that really are only there because of political pressure. And yep. that if we were organising our health system, you know, on the basis of, uh, you know, efficiency, value for money and maybe, you know, returns on, you know, or happy the numbers of staff that we have in the system that maybe they wouldn't be there and we'd be saving money. I think he made an interesting point about, you know, he said that he'd like to see targeted and differential incentives. So if we need, um, you know, intensive care nurses or we need more professionals in mental health services, that we should be able to offer them more money because there's actually, you know, a, a huge need for those professionals. But we can't do that because all the other union reps you represent everybody else in the system mm. would start kicking and screaming then they demand a kind of a commensurate increase in their pay so I mean that's a very practical problem with the health service where if it was a private organisation or a private institution if you have a deficit of staff in a particular area and you can't recruit then obviously the pay goes up because there's more demand but in the public service you can't do that because everybody wants the same. And of course there's a problem with striking as well they can't strike the way same way teachers uh, teachers can because that would collapse a lot of health services. We have the same problem in the university system. We have a we have a terrible staff-student ratio relative to other countries in Europe and we really cannot hire people at the rate that we need to because of the continuing government embargo. I, I just want to, before we move on uh, from, I suppose, health stories, the front page of the, the Sunday Independent is worth mentioning, uh, Gráinne, because it, it strikes me that actually uh, Simon Harris would be quite happy if he's not happy with Tony O'Brien he'd be quite happy with this because if you're going to have a, a thousand people on trolleys at some stage over the next few weeks which is very likely it suits Simon Harris to be at war with the people responsible for that because it's not him of well, yeah, this, the, it's an interesting kind of because we don't get to see these kind of stories a lot. What's going on behind closed doors? And if you remember um, what what Harris, so the, the story is about how uh, Harris is at odds with his uh, department officials, and it's over the how he criticised them during the cervical checks um, controversy. And if you remember, a report was leaked um, to the media before the women involved in the cervical cervical check controversy um, got to be briefed on it I suppose and there was a kind of a big fallout from this where Vicky Phelan said she woke up to a whitewash um, and it wasn't the best way to handle it to put it mildly um, so that this is kind of like a, a kind of a, a continuation from that and on the surface of it it doesn't like it's not like voters are going to be very annoyed with Harris for as you say for, for being at odds with his officials especially uh, as we the kind of healthcare crisis on trolleys ramps up but at the same time it's going to be hard to run a department if your officials are um, angry with you and annoyed with you and it's difficult enough as it is so it, that's going to be Harris won't be happy with that It's put it interesting that way. actually the, the kind of juxtaposition between like the you know the Sindo has Harris as tough guy laying down mm. the law to his and um, Tony O'Brien has him as you know scared little child cowering in the corner <laughs> under, under, under the desk you know so I don't know who do you believe Yeah well I'll tell you what after the break we'll, we'll jettison both and we'll go to the Sunday Times and their front page about Brexit stay with us <laughs> On the record, on, the record. on News Talk.
Yes, this is News Talk you're listening to on the record. Kieran Cuddihy with you until one o'clock. Ronnie Yeda from the Journal.ie, Colette Brown from Economist with the Independent, and John O'Brien, Professor of European Politics at NUI Maynooth, are all with me in studio. Uh, I mentioned before the break, uh, Brexit news in the papers, the Sunday Times leading with May's secret deal to keep the UK in a customs union. Uh, Justine McCarthy as well writing inside on page two. Varadkar, Brexit fraying UK relations. Uh, Brendan O'Connor is writing a bit about this along with Johnny Marr on the front page of the Sindo. Uh, for Keane and Dan O'Brien as well talking about it and The Observer I mentioned in the UK uh, leading with an Aaron Banks story that Aaron Banks the businessman involved with Leave.eu um, there was leaked emails last night uh, that showed that some of the staff and some of the companies that one of his shell companies owns <laughs> kind of complicated uh, were working on Leave.eu when they should not have been uh, this is despite what he told uh, MPs when he's been questioned about this previously uh, Aaron Banks himself was actually on Andrew Marr on the BBC this morning um, let's take a very quick listen to that. Where did the money originally I'm you, come from? came from a UK company which that had company? cash generated in the UK. Which We've UK company? That, Rock Services. We've evidenced that to the Electoral Your Rock Services is a shell company. It doesn't generate you money. You just said it's a shell company. You just read the FT. Well, no, we go along to Companies House. I mean, I mean, I mean the FT, by the way, in their analysis... We go along to Companies House. The FT, in their analysis of my business affairs, missed out a whole company that supplies nearly 85% of the underwriting of my business. They select... Let, let's be honest about this, why this, this is happening. This should be easy for you to answer. I it should be very this. easy for you to answer. What was the company that generated £8 million? I've pounds answered that it. Rock with, Services. But Rock, Rock Services is not a trading company. Well, they, we're going to have to agree to differ on that. I think I know my so business... What, what, Okay. Better than you. What does Rock Services do that generates Rock that kind services of money? Rock Services has all sorts of revenue. It generates some uh, All sorts of revenue? Income. What kind of revenue? We insure half a million people in the UK, Andrew. Rock we Services. We turn over Rock Services itself million. insures half a million people. There's a, it's a group of companies. I know it's complex for journalists to understand. It's not complex. It's, it's very complex. It's just complex. That it looks like a company which well, doesn't no, generate sorry. that kind of money. As far as I'm concerned, I've given you the answer to the question. We know what this is about. This is about undermining Article 50. It's undermining the Brexit result. And it's a collection of very vicious Labour MPs that have grouped together with The Guardian and uh, mm. FT to try to undermine Brexit. You I know? want to ask you one other thing, and I've got however, a lovely bit here from the BBC, there, there, is, a, the there is a quote. There yeah. is a quote in today's Sunday Times from you saying that you regret voting for leave, that if you had your time over again, you'd vote Remain. Is that true? Well, I think what I said was that the corruption I've seen in British politics, the sewer that exists, and the disgraceful behaviour of the government over what they're doing with Brexit and how they're selling it out, mm. means that if I had my time again, I, I think we would have been better to probably remain and well, not unleash these demons. OK, Aaron Banks, now thank you very much thank indeed. You. Ah, a nice warm and fuzzy interview uh, between uh, Andrew Marr and Aaron Banks. John, you'll have to explain this to people because it it is important. Um, uh, and we'll talk about, look, some of the deals that m- may or may not be happening in the coming days and weeks in terms of the, the, the broader Brexit picture. Uh, but in terms of Aaron Banks and Rock Services and the various companies that may or may not have been trading companies, we'll agree to disagree on that. Uh, what's happening? What is it? Well, Banks is a very controversial figure. He's a real white boy, uh, to coin a phrase. Uh, he uh, has been the subject of an investigation by the National Crime Agency in the UK. And that investigation has come about because of the extraordinary 
uh, and dogged journalism by Carol Cadwallader in The Observer. Some of that uh, is in the newspaper today. Mm. And by uh, Peter Gagan and Adam Ramsey for Open Democracy. They published a piece last night, which was hugely important, which Adam, um, which Andrew Marr didn't even reference. And it was exactly uh, that uh, employees from Banks's company had actually been deployed to work on the, the various set of companies to de- work on the Leave EU campaign, which is expressly against the rules uh, set by the Electoral Commission in Britain. So that's one of the allegations that's against him. It's also that he lied repeatedly to Parliament about this when he was questioned uh, at various junctures. And if you actually go back to his last appearance before the Select Committee, you may remember that he just got up and walked out. Yeah. He said that he was having lunch with the DUP and that he wouldn't be taking any more questions. Uh, that, that, that was really almost unprecedented in my viewing of Select Committees in the UK. So this is not going away, I think, and it's part of what's going on internally. And you get a parliamentary <laughs> committee or lunch with the DUP. It's a toss-up. It's a toss-up. <laughs> uh, but I think there is um, – uh, this is a sideshow in some senses. There is a real suspicion that uh, some of this money uh, – it came from very opaque – uh, structures at the very least, and you could see that in the roundabout discussion with Andrew Marr about Rock Holdings versus. Yeah, it strikes the other me it, it's not necessarily complicated. Actually, the eight million quid was put into the, the coffers of Leave.eu. This one came from Rock Services, but he wouldn't say where Rock Services got the money. And except that Rock Services strong, is very profitable, but it actually isn't. It just owns companies yeah, that are, and he wouldn't say what they are. There is a strong suspicion that Aaron Banks is not just is not, is not as wealthy as he uh, suggests yeah. that he is, but that this money. Might might have come from other sources, including potentially from Russia. And that's the real core of this uh, set of allegations that are being pursued now by the National Crime Agency. So that's going on. That's part of what's going on in the domestic context in Britain. But meanwhile, in Brussels, the adults are actually talking to each other. And there's, a, I think, a cautious sense of optimism. The mood music is better than it's been in recent weeks. Yeah, well, let's Uh, talk about that then. Because, look, Aaron Banks this morning, of course, denied it was Russian money and just said, look, they insure half a million people. He wouldn't even name the company that insures half a million people. But anyway, that was his line uh, and he's sticking to it. Uh, the Customs Union, this is the, the deal that's on the front page of the, the Sunday Times. Um, was it probably January this year? The sense was after the December agreement and um, this is before it had been people tried to kind of walk it back was that there would be a customs union, but just don't call it a customs union. That that essentially is the only way that you wouldn't break up the UK and the Northern Ireland. There'd be no hard border. And then there was 10 months of confusion and suddenly we're kind of, turns out we've just been walking in a big circle. Is that it? Yeah, there have been 101 different kind of variations on that theme over the course of the year and all of that is about the terrible uh, position that Mrs May is in and the kind of forces that she's trying to balance. Um, But a a word of caution because not just the Sunday Times but other British newspapers have repeatedly got it wrong over the last month or so where they've said that the UK government was on the point of doing the deal with Michel Barnier and his team, Mm. only for that to be challenged by Mr Barnier and his team in subsequent days. Because they seem to only get briefed by people in the British government and don't bother going to Brussels to get the alternative view. There's a lot of spinning going back. Uh, I think a deal will be done over the next two weeks, but in a way that's kind of irrelevant because that deal then has to come back to Westminster. Mm. And that's where the action really lies. It's about how the Conservative Party is going to react to it, whether Mrs May manages to break up 
up this so-called European Research Group, Jacob Rees-Mogg and his acolytes, by threatening them with a general election and the prospect of Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. And on the other side, she's been trying to peel off 30 or 40 Labour MPs Mm. precisely to ensure that she wouldn't actually be dependent in the end on the DUP voting for this. But even the DUP's sort of message, I think, has improved in recent days. So I think the optimism that's there, I think, is justified. But nevertheless, I think we should still be very cautious. I mean, the people in in the UK seem to be doing some kind of victory lap. But I mean, if you look down into the small print of what the articles say about what this, you know, amazing deal is, it's that the deal is going to outline a spectrum of possible outcomes somewhere between Chequers and Canada. So the the deal is that we still don't know what we're going to do, (laughs) but we're just going to outline this kind of vague set of uh, terms. All all of that is about the future relationship, which Mm. is going to be negotiated in the future. And the, the, the Brits have been trying to pack as much as possible into that while Barney and his team have been resisting it yeah. but the key thing I think yeah, here in, 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 in the is interim the, we're going to have the, the customs as, as, as he said here in the customs agreement that isn't, that that, isn't a customs agreement The customs agreement. union that would keep the United Kingdom uh, in the customs union but the key thing is this so-called exit clause yeah. um, Mrs May in, in the Chequers plan uh, suggested that the UK could remain part of a customs union but it could only be a temporary arrangement. Now, the Irish government and Mr. Barney made it clear that that would not be acceptable to Ireland. They're still, it seems to me, persisting with that. The exit clause has the same ring as a kind of temporary customs union It's going membership. to be an exit clause with no end date. So I, I suspect that that's going to be the kernel of the real discussions uh, in Brussels over the final week or two weeks uh, before we get to a potential well, summit what, at the what end What I found November. hilarious about, you know, about it was was that you know that was breathlessly reported in the British press as some kind of you know huge achievement that actually you know when they come up with the deal in March the document that they sign it's going to be up to fifty pages and not just five pages which everybody <laughs> thought it was going to be so I mean after more than two years of wrangling and everybody being up all night and all of this negotiation they'll manage to cobble together you know fifty pages of work I think it's uh, interesting um, that. You know, there's no new ideas left in terms of Brexit. So they're just, as you said, we're circling around, finding it until we land on one that everybody agrees with, basically. And uh, the idea of the uh, the customs union, you know, I think I heard someone describe the the current deal that's possibly on the table as a first cousin of the customs union, which is a good way of of kind of describing um, the kind of settlement they're making. Um, But it also says in that Sunday Times article that, uh, well, an EU negotiator, an EU official says that they still want a Northern Ireland specific backstop as part of that. So in a way, nothing has changed. This whole EU-wide customs agreement is that whole backstop to a backstop, which again is not a new idea. Explain Um, where we are in terms of uh, how the Brits at least think the backstop issue is solved by this first cousin of a customs union. So the idea is that Ireland and the UK will be so closely aligned, or I should say the UK and the EU will be so closely aligned that we won't need border checks on the island of Ireland because we'll basically have the same customs rules. Um, And the problem with that is basically we don't know what kind of Brexit the UK government want. So depending on we go into the next stage of negotiations, negotiating the future range or the future relationship and trade deals, um, the UK could change their mind. So this is the whole point of the backstop. This is why we wanted it. It's not that 
you know, we can't, like I think there's a lot in the UK press about how unnecessary it is. The reason it's necessary is we don't know what the UK government wants in terms of the future relationship and trade deals. So the idea of the backstop is to make sure no matter how many times the UK government flip between like prime ministers or policies from checkers to whatever else they're going to go to, that we will not have a hard border on the island of Ireland. Yeah, this is why the language attaching to this so-called exit clause, if it materialises, will be Mm. so important. This is the backstop to the backstop. Uh, But, you know, the Irish (laughs) government and the EU wants this to be a permanent arrangement. The United Kingdom government doesn't. The people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and others don't even want it to be a temporary arrangement. So it's up to Mrs May how she squares all of that but I have no doubt that Ireland and the EU will remain absolutely firm and insistent in the weeks ahead and that Mrs May will have to swallow her pride I think because she set out I think very mistakenly and foolishly all these red lines she has retreated on almost all of them and the question now is how you package the latest and final retreat See, and sell it to her own government and her party. What about the idea that actually she's a genius right? <laughs> yeah. Because to re- they will end up in a version of the customs union not called the customs union which is what she wanted all along. Well, interestingly today, Tony Blair, remember him? He has a piece in The Observer as well in which he urges Labour MPs to vote against the deal. And it doesn't matter what's actually in the deal. It doesn't matter the nature of the deal. He's saying to them, including lots of people that he's completely uh, apart from ideologically, that you should reject this. And the only way we can really solve this is by a people's vote. Uh, Now, the Labour Party is just as divided as mm. the Conservative Party is. I don't think anything has changed there. But I think it is interesting that allied to 50 business leaders coming out today as well and urging Mrs May to think again about a second referendum. And again, she stated emphatically she's opposed to that. But I think the momentum has moved a little bit in that direction. It has, so? to first, no, it has to first, however, run through Westminster no, over the has, next two weeks. Nothing has changed in terms of the public perception of Brexit. So if you look at the opinion polls before the 2016 referendum was held, uh, Remain were four p- percentage points ahead. That has not changed despite what we've seen in Brexit. And uh, Rem- Remain were four points ahead and they were wrong. So you'd imagine possibly on that same margin of error that you'd get the same result now. But the point is, even if Remain, if there's a four percentage point ahead for Remain supporters, um, even if that's uh, accurate, it's not a huge tide surge towards uh you know, remaining or, you know, we want to remain in the no, EU I, now. I absolutely And then agree. the marches we saw on the streets, they looked very dramatic. But at the same time, there was almost half the population of the UK that voted to, to remain. Yeah. Though it was, it was probably those people out on the streets rather than a huge cohort sure, of people. But when this to comes back to Westminster, uh, there's, there'll be a key dynamic, I think, in play, which is that uh, a lot of MPs on the Conservative side and on the Labour side who will not want to vote for this kind of deal for different reasons, actually, mm. that it would be easier for them to actually refer this back to the people so that they don't have to live with the responsibility of having voted this there's through no time to, permanently. To, like, there's no time for a people's vote, really, yeah. because, I mean, you have this ironclad deadline of, you know, March 2019. Uh, you know, it's, it's I, I don't know whether we're going to have an EU summit this month, whether there has been this huge breakthrough or not, or it, it, it remains to be seen. So if you're trying to organise another referendum in the 
UK to have a people vote and have another referendum. I mean, how, how can you logistically if do that before March 2019? There I, just doesn't yeah, seem to be time. Depending on the vote, on the meaningful vote in the House of Commons mm. before Christmas. And if, if there, there is a, one, if there is one if before is Christmas. One, no, I think there definitely will be one. Uh, uh, and depending on the outcome of that, if the UK government were to specifically ask for an extended transition, they have done so in other contexts. But if they do that, the space, I think, would open up for a second referendum. But if they're already gone after March 2019 and they're in a tra- transitionary period. No, then I'm talking about January, February, that all of this could evolve very quickly in that kind of country. I think it's really, really interesting period. that vote in the House of Commons, whatever deal we do get, it will be really interesting because I can't think of any kind of deal that Theresa May can bring back when you asked yep. if she was a genius earlier yeah. she has said she will leave the customs union and now but she wanted to stay in it all along it, she, she's contradicted herself I don't know how yeah. many times Bl- Blair so makes that exact point yeah. in his article, that there's actually no deal now that will get through the House of Commons now the reason I think there, that that might not be the case is that the, when you actually confront the existential cons- economic consequences of mm. leaving, that many MPs might be prevailed upon to change their minds. Well, very briefly then before the ads, if you go through the maths, and actually Nigel Dodds was speaking in the North on Friday evening uh, and kind of reminded Theresa May of the mathematical uh, <laughs> situation I- in Westminster, and you say, look, uh, Theresa May can afford to lose X amount of her own party, in, you know, this 1922 group, the ERG or whoever, uh, vote against it, if she can bring X amount of Labour votes with her and then she doesn't need the DUP. It strikes me in all of this, at this point I keep making, banging my head off a brick wall, Sinn Féin kind of get away fairly lightly, don't they? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? There's a load of empty seats there and if this all collapses over a handful of votes, for them to kind of stand up and say, well, look, this is our principle. I'm sorry, but like, it's the DUP's principle to maintain the union. Yeah, we're all too happy to criticise yeah, them. Yeah, but it's Sinn Féin. It's, you know, they're one, one of their core beliefs is they want a united Ireland. And what they believe really is that Brexit is going to be the thing that hastens a united Ireland. So you can see from their own kind of narrow perspective that actually there is maybe method to their madness. Also, obviously, their abstentionist policies for, you know, since their inception. But I mean, other than that, I think, you know, they they they. They're, they're basically fans of Brexit and, you know, they don't really care about it that much. Well, it's, OK, I can't say they don't care about it that much. Obviously, they do. They're based in the north, but they they, they believe it is going to hasten a, a united Ireland. And if they were going to rock up to Westminster, maybe they'd uh, delay that. All right. Well, look, that's enough Brexit and enough backstop for this week. Anyway, uh, stay with us back after this quick break. On the record. On News Talk. Yes, you are listening to On the Record here on News Talk 53106 for your text at the cost of 30 cent. You can get me on Twitter at Kieran Goddighy, Gráinne Nieda. Uh, Brown and John O'Brennan are with me in studio. I want to turn our attention uh, to we were talking about Brexit before the break. We're kind of stick with European issues. This is our theme. Uh, Angela Merkel. Uh, a lot of people writing about her in the papers today the business post is syndicating and uh, Colin Murphy a genuine pillar of Europe will miss her when she goes and Conor Brady in the Sunday Times we will miss Merkel in the face of EU's populist push uh, Owen Harris as well uh, Merkel will be sorely missed by the European God there must have been a press release or something was there from the <laughs> Bundestag uh, about how we're all going to miss Angela Merkel went out to all the sub-editors out there uh, John will we miss her? Yes I think we will Uh, in the sense that she has been a kind of bulwark of stability in Europe. 
uh, or since she came to office in 2005, and especially since the Eurozone crisis in 2008. Now, as it happens, I disagreed with her uh, Eurozone policies. Uh, but nevertheless, if you're to judge her fairly, I think, and in the round, she has made an enormous contribution to uh, governance in Europe and at particularly critical times. I mean, that decision in 2015 on refugees, uh, which was deeply unpopular, which she knew was going to be unpopular in the voting base of the CDU, and which she seems to have paid a terrible price for, mm. looking at the election in Hesse last week. It was just the latest indication. Uh, that was genuinely brave and courageous. And if you look at the way she stood up to Trump, uh, notably on a number of occasions, uh, I think there is every case to suggest she'll be missed. But um, I think a lot of this um, coverage suggests that there's going to be this great disruption now in German politics. Mm. I don't think that will be the case at all. In fact, if we go back to through the entire history uh, of the Federal Republic, as it used to be called from 1949, there is much more continuity than there is uh, uh, disruption. If you look at the handover of power when it takes place, whether it was 2005 or previously uh, from Helmut Kohl over to Schroeder, and even internally within uh, German political parties, there's a lot of cohesion, even if there are the normal divisions. Uh, so I don't think the change when it comes will be as dramatic as uh, has been suggested. But there is no doubt that at European level, we are seeing really dramatic challenges coming from the far right in particular. And we will find out, I think, in the European Parliament elections in May of next year, just how strong the far right is uh, right across the European Union. Uh, Grainne, an interesting piece kind of on that note is, is uh, I suppose, a counterweight possibly to this rise of the populist far right. Uh, Varoufakis, a Greek bearing a gift to challenge EU politics. This is in the mm. Sunday Indo. Uh, Paddy Agnew is writing about it because part of the launch of Varoufakis's, I'm not sure, is it a party? It's kind of like a pan-European movement um, uh, was done in Rome during the week. It's interesting. Uh, I, obviously, Varoufakis is the most uh, noted uh, critic of the EU, kind of within the EU. Um, um, and it is an interesting uh, debate. I think Merkel, it, on that note, Merkel is a great symbol for the EU because she's kind of sticks to her ideals and she's been uh, a champion of migration and open borders, and that's which is so important to the EU. And we've seen how important during those Brexit talks where they're insisting the UK keep its borders open. At the same time, that whole ideal is under threat in the same way that Merkel's a champion and she's now gone because of that, um, because of migration as, as, as a part of it. Um, she is, she as a symbol of the European Union is under threat in terms of is that what the majority of people want or is there some sort of change or uh, variation that needs to happen for Europe to stay working and I think the other interesting about Mer interesting thing about Merkel we talk about um, I think Varadkar was uh, defending himself as having uh, sub substance and style yesterday, um, and he's had a, he's been he's been criticised <laughs> as having no style and or, or no substance. No praise, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> he's been criticised, in fairness, for being all about his public image. I think uh, Merkel is the opposite, where she's all substance and not much flair or style, and I think that is both a compliment and a negative as well. Where um, as much as she's steadfast in her political beliefs, she's kind of um, left to kind of, she hasn't stalked out a vision I suppose for Europe or staked out a vision for Europe staked out a vision for Germany that people can get behind Well the guy who did st uh, set out this vision for Europe of course was President Macron uh, and he said last year that he was going to found this new pan-European movement 
that would be similar to En Marche, the um, mm. incipient kind of movement that he founded and that was so spectacularly successful in France. Would you believe that the boy wonder a year and a bit on from that great election victory is now significantly less popular in France than Donald Trump is in the United States? And there's been no sign of uh, any kind of European on Marche uh, <laughs> emerging. So good luck to Varoufakis if this is what he's trying to do. But you know, it would go against all the sort of uh, previous um, knowledge that we have about how European uh, par- politics operates. European parli- um, Parliament elections are not European elections. They are localised elections, not just in Ireland, but all over the place. And there have been attempts to change this. Uh, it wasn't just Macron. They, For example, last time they set up a system called the Spitzenkandidaten system. So this was supposed to be something that would... You wrote that uh, down, so, didn't you? <laughs> to remind yeah, yourself. Yeah, don't ask me to spell it. Uh, you, you, you would have the uh, centre-right represented by an identifiable candidate the centre-left, the far-left, the Greens, and so on. Um, Now, it really didn't capture the public imagination in 2014, and we're still unsure six months out from the election whether it's going to fly this time. The European People's Party, which Merkel, of course, is part of and which Fine Gael is attached to, they are holding their selection convention for their candidate within the next week, I think, in Helsinki. And they have two candidates, Manfred Weber, the German uh, CSU leader who is attached to Merkel and her party, and Alex Stubb, the former prime minister of Finland. But neither of these guys is known really outside of their own countries or outside of Brussels. So the idea that they could, or, or even somebody as charismatic as Varoufakis or Macron, kind of inspire people around mm. Europe to start thinking in European terms I think it's really for the I'm birds. just reminded of Declan Ganley in Libertas uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> oh, Where are <laughs> they now? Yeah. And, uh, the crashed and burned <laughs> Oh maybe recall. here's a role for Peter Casey <laughs> Now granted Declan Ganley doesn't rejected. have the same kind of profile internationally as Varoufakis but you know I, But uh, I suppose it's part of the problem with these movements Colette is that when you're trying to ins- you're trying to inspire people about something that really isn't that inspiring yeah, I think that that is a problem and maybe Varoufakis should concentrate on Greece more and maybe stopping the rise of the ultra-right in Greece. I mean, if he could devote more of his time to doing that rather than trying to cure all the ills, you know, of every country across Europe, it might be more worthwhile. I think the in relation to Merkel, she was a great champion of the European project and I think that there's a danger once she's gone, then, you know, that bulwark that who really protected the four freedoms of Europe, who was really, really invested personally from her own background, having grown up behind behind, you know, in Eastern Europe, behind the Berlin Wall, having had that personal experience that kind of directed her in and especially in relation to the one million refugees that that she left in in 2015 or 2016, you know, after she goes, will there still be the same kind of commitment to the European ideal in Germany? You know, I I, I don't know. Especially when uh, migration is that we talk about Brexit a lot here because it's important to us. But migration is the one, the big thing in the European Union that they're worried about and they don't know how to handle it because all member states disagree on it. You know, hard right support in Germany has gone from 4.7% to 12.6% for for AFD and, and I mean, the and, and the the, the, the voting system for European Parliament elections is even more favourable to smaller parties. So I, th- you know, UKIP, for example, was mm. the largest party uh, in 2014 in the UK. So I think the National Front in France, Salvini's party, they are all going to do tremendously well. So the makeup of the next European Parliament could be substantially different from before, and that's important because the European Parliament is a co-legislator now. It has a lot more power than people actually think it has, and that. Would 
will be important next year. Let me just read a statement we've got in from a spokesperson for the Taunish, uh, Simon Coveney. The, it's just on that Sunday Times story about the first cousin of the customs union, as you described it. Uh, the EU27 has been united through the Brexit process. The UK has given written commitments last December and March that the withdrawal agreement will give a legal guarantee of no return to a hard border in Ireland in any circumstances. This is the backstop. In March, the UK agreed this backstop will apply unless and until a close future relationship eliminates any need for border infrastructure or related checks and controls. We want the EU and the UK to get to negotiating that close future deal, but the UK must first deliver on the commitments of leaving. The EU's support to Ireland has been and remains unwavering. The negotiators are working hard and a running commentary isn't helpful. Today's Sunday Times piece is obviously aimed at a UK audience. Journalists, stop doing your job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just quiet down. You're uh, making my life more difficult. No, I think it is reflective of a kind of frustration in Dublin because mm. we've seen this again and again and again. Remember two or three weeks ago, Dominic, before the last summit, Dominic Rabb was in Brussels and the British papers were all over the fact that a deal was going to be done that Sunday evening and it wasn't. It was really premature and there are any number of domestic political games, I think, being played out partly through the front pages but, of the Sunday well, Times. If, well, if Simon Coveney can stop people in the British government briefing journalists in Britain, then maybe he should no, get on the phone the and try to do something The interesting part that. of that statement is that uh, it's, it's aimed at a UK audience because the way those pieces have been written, not just in the Sunday Times, but reports about the Sunday Times piece, is that it is a concession by Brussels for the UK yeah. that they're inside this customs yeah. union, mm. which jars a little because, um, you know, the 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 EU don't want the UK to leave, so anything close to what they've got now is what they wanted. So it's, it was it, it jarred at me reading that that it was phrased as a concession but in it all would the UK be, reports. It, like if, if if it did happen, it would be a concession because the EU or the EU have said all along that no, you're not going to have um, a, a UK wide box up. It has to be just Northern Ireland. Well, I'm sorry, I'm shutting down this unhelpful commentary <laughs> right now, <laughs> as the Tonish would like us to do. Uh, Gronin Yeda, reporter with the Journal.ie, Colette Brown, columnist at the Irish Independent, and John O'Brien, professor of European politics at NUI. Manu, thanks everyone for coming in this morning. Stay with us back after this quick break. <laughs> On the record. On, record. On news talk.